Yeah, and to answer your question, yeah. I do find I do find you know I've, as you know I've been using Swift quite a while, and mm-hmm. I do find so I'm seeing a funny cat video online here, but um, <laughs> I, I do find it. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I don't know why, but. Um, So hey everybody, welcome to episode 121 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Tim Mitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Aaron Bay in Whitby, Ontario. Hello there. And we're also joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And as well as Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. All right. So, yes. So I put up a post here uh, for, for the follow-up on um, a piece that I found by Jean-Louis Gasset, and I've forgotten who I found that through. But Jean-Louis Gasset, for those of you who don't know, was at one time a rather senior guy in Apple. He, I think he was running the, the European division for a long time. And rumor has it he's the guy that ratted out Steve Jobs during the Steve Jobs versus John Scully um, era. And he, so he was a senior exec at Apple for a long time. So he knows a bit about the sort of backstory of them. And he's the guy that started the B operating system. And he was also, he was opposed to uh, cloning at first, but, or, or sort of licensing, licensing out the operating system. Um, that's sort of the history of Jean-Louis Gasset. He was a big player around Apple in the late eighties, early nineties, I guess. Anyway, so he posted this piece here, which kind of sort of, um, backs up some of the stuff that Aaron was saying, I don't know, three, four episodes ago about Apple and their position with the Macintosh. Um, interest, first interesting point he has is that if um, Apple spun the Mac division out on its own, it would still be rather high in the, um, it would rank 123rd in the Fortune 500 list. So it still would be a good performer in terms of a business. And he goes on to talk about how, um, what, companies like Apple could do what companies like HP have done in the past with their uh, products and, and talks in generally about the decline of the PC market and, and um, how Apple kind of is, is playing through that. Um, as he says, taking the, seem to be taking the high road um, with you know, the new Mac pros being more expensive and uh, rolling in features like the touch bar. Um, just as a sort of digression for a second, we talked a bit about John Gruber's piece. I think it was last week or the week before. But um, one thing that John Gruber sort of said, the touch bar to him, um, the, the amount of effort that went into producing that, that technology um, seemed to, to for Gruber to be an indication that Apple does, in fact, care about the Mac. But um, just sort of – I don't know if any of you guys have read this piece, but he also goes on to talk about how when the iPad came out, they thought it would be sort of – it would parallel what – um, the phone did with the iPod um, and, the, and the iPad would become a new platform as we've talked about many times on the show, right? Um, you guys have any thoughts on this piece? Have you read it? I read them every week, the Monday note. That's what Jean-Louis Gasset does. Yeah, so since since he agrees with me, then I, I cannot help but hail him as a genius and uh, someone who <laughs> clearly knows his industry. So... Uh, absolutely. The point he makes at the end really is, um, Apple's focused on iOS because that's where the money's at. And exactly, what, yeah. what would be the point in developing the Mac any further than it already does? So, um, uh, at the end of the day, you're probably not going to see much interest from Apple in the Mac. I still yeah. think we're going to see something. Um, I, I do believe that in the early new year, we're going to we're going to get some desktop news. 
Yeah, I think I think the Mac is still a platform of choice, but but it also sort of talks to he talks about the the point that we made last week about whether why Apple's dropping interest in uh, routers and monitors and things like that, and and uh, he makes a point of you know a, a general usually puts the effort in his army in terms of where he can win the most points, so that's why they're putting all their effort behind iOS, the iPhone, and the Mac to a certain extent. Like I said, the the Touch Bar is an indication that Apple does actually have sort of some sort of future vision for that kind of platform. I mean, I played around with with a touch bar a couple of times during the Black Friday sales. I got to see a couple of uh, devices live. I've, I, I mentioned last week that I played around with the um, Touche app. So I'm familiar with what it does. And you have one, Aaron. So how do you find now that you've had the um, MacBook for a week, how does the touch bar uh, change your life or not change your life or just sort of lie there and be impressive? I use it, but I can't claim that it's changed my life. Uh, but I use it. I mean, it would be like saying, uh, how about those function keys in that road? You know, do you use that? Yeah, I use them. Uh, so it's, it's nice. I mean, they're nice to have, um, they do interesting things. I noticed a, a new thing tonight when I'm recording this in QuickTime, And when I switch to QuickTime, the touch bar shows the elapsed time recorded and the, the amount of data that it's recording. I just put a picture of that on Twitter while you guys were talking sports earlier. So <laughs> uh, it's, it's neat. I mean, it does neat things. And I think the things that it does will change as app developers figure out what it should do. But, um, one thing I did, I, you might recall my complaining about Safari in particular, when it showed those unreadable thumbnails of the pages in each tab, right? Yep, uh, yep. you can customize the touch bar for every app, uh, in Safari, for example, you can go to the view menu and customize touch bar, and then you get that UI. And I think every Every Mac app has a view, customized touch bar, menu command. So right. I, I oh. removed that part. The, the the thumbnails are gone, and in their place are a bunch of more useful buttons that now populate my touch bar when Safari is active. Yeah, so, I kind of I kind of sort of vision the the touch bar becoming a like a wider interface, maybe bigger or more interactive. Like in, in the same sense that the touch the touchpad has gotten much bigger on the new devices as well, right? Um, like the, the trackpad, I should say, it's mm-hmm. much bigger real estate wise. It's almost the size of the, the magic trackpad that they came out with a couple of years ago. Right. That is true. I don't know. Like, uh, will they do that? Uh, they would have to take space away from the actual keys to do that. So I, I am not sure whether they would do that or not. Maybe even, maybe even they, they add some display functionality behind the, the trackpad itself. Right. So who knows? Right. I suppose anything's possible, but I mean, is Apple focused on that? That's how we got here. Um, is Apple yeah, exactly, focused on yeah. that? What what they're actually doing uh, is pushing iOS where where the money's at uh, with with much greater alacrity uh, and uh, m- much more conservative and slow on the Mac side. At some point, it seems likely to state that iOS will overtake the Mac. Um, you know, like just look mm-hmm. at the hardware. So, I think that's what what. Um, uh, Gasset is saying in this column, it's uh, it's getting kind of silly now when you look at the um, the effort being put into iOS, and particularly on the hardware side too, where where Apple controls yeah. the entire stack, um, and then to see the like effort being put onto the Mac, you know, it's night and day. I think there'll always be that that complement of things, but I think we've seen things evolve on the desktop. Uh, and I'll include laptop in, in that because that, that used to be mobile, but now it's not really considered the same category anymore um, to where it's it's really hard to think of like what would be fantastic for those form factors. I think they've gotten 
almost perfect, right? Like if, if they were, you know, aerodynamic objects, they'd be perfectly aerodynamic or at least very close to it as an analogy. Uh, I think touch-based devices are, are kind of getting there as well, right? We kind of aren't as wowed and, and, you know, amused at the very least by, by things, you know, it's not as big of a jump for every iteration anymore. And there are other interfaces like voice um, and, and other bits that are, I don't think anything is going to replace anything. It's more like they're all going to be complementary in some way. And for a lot of people, you, you might get away with just like, yeah, you know, all I have is a smartphone, no tablet, no laptop, no desktop, um, you know, no voice assistant uh, device sitting in your house, like an echo or a Google home. Um, but for folks who have sort of broader needs or maybe just wacky desires, like there will be those other things, right? I think until you have something where it can be intuited by people, some sort of like brain implant ghost in the machine, uh, sorry, ghost in the shell, uh, kind of uh, interface. <laughs> Good tie in there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, how could these things completely go? I, I can't imagine they would, right? Like we still have keyboards and until very recently, we still had freaking function keys, right? Like that, that were like historical holdovers from a long, long time ago that most people don't really need, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm looking at you, keep my keyboard right now. For those of you uh, driving along at home, um, what do you think the, if you don't have any focus on any window, like no particular app, what does your F8 key do? I bet you wouldn't know, right? You probably like yeah. struggling thinking like, oh shit, I don't know what that does. Uh, well, if it's like my keyboard, it's going to start playing music because I probably have iTunes up somewhere playing some music. Yeah, queued up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, why should I have to like, one, remember where that thing is and two, really, really have to like look past the little F8 in the corner where it could be something like a touch bar. Like, oh yeah, of course I want to play music. Boom, play it right there. And, and no, no. And, and, and as far as like, um, Apple's like investment in these things, like why would you invest a whole bunch more to get like a very small incremental amount out of something when there's like these other, you know, greener open field type things available? Yeah. I was going to say yeah. that, uh, it, it's, um, it's an interesting point about the use of the function keys. Aaron mentioned that she, he uses them a lot. I, I don't. Um, um, other than, you know, when I'm editing a podcast, I use that pause and play button a lot. Um, the time that, um, Jaime just pointed out the, for me, the touch, the, the function keys had a lot of utility when in the earlier lap MacBooks, right? And the power book and stuff like that, because they didn't have the space to put in a full set of key, keys for whatever reason, like technology wise or whatever. So a lot of times you had to use the func the FN key to sort of modify other keys to make it do things. Um, and then, you know, slowly over time, we've gotten to the point where we, we practically have uh, an extended keyboard minus the, the, the number keys, right? So we don't have the 101 keys or whatever it is. Um, so now we have full functionality. I really like to be on, I use my volume control keys. Um, I'd never touched any of the other brightness or, or, um, dashboard or what's that multi thing where you can open up different windows or different desktops. I don't use those keys at all. I don't use the brightness or darkness, you know? Oh, right. Um, uh, mission and, control. Is that the one you're talking about? I always, control, I always yeah, forget what yeah. that's called too. Yeah. Yeah, there's even – I'm looking at – I'm working on an old um, – uh, one of these little aluminum keyboards from back in the day. I can't remember what they're called. Um, and it's, there's even a dashboard icon on, on this keyboard, you know, like like <laughs> I never used dashboard, you know. It was always an accident when I opened it, right? Um, so the evolution of the track track bar, track 
Touch Bar. What's it called? Touch, Touch bar. bar. Right? Touch Bar. Thank you. Um, it's interesting. And it's funny because I walked up to, I was at Best Buy buying a TV and buying a keyboard with my grandson the other day. Um, and um, he's gone over to the dark side. I can't believe it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I walked up to a, a MacBook, a 13-inch MacBook with uh, with the touch bar. There was nobody at the table, and I and it was asleep. And I just touched the touch bar, and it woke the Mac up. And and you know, then started I just started showing him some of the stuff with like Aaron was saying. I opened up a YouTube or YouTube video and showed him how you could scrub around in it, you know, using the, using the touch bar. So, um, and, and it's interesting how it looks. It looks very different than I kind of expected, you know, from the pictures or the videos or something. Like in real life, it's got a very matte look to it, which I like, you know. But yeah, it was just, it's interesting. My point though is that I don't really have a reason to use the that part of the keyboard, but I think if I had a touch bar, I probably would. You might. I might. You, you never know. You you may mm-hmm. never know. Well, I'll know soon. I'll know soon. Um so we have another follow-up item and that's Aaron. So I want to lead into that, Aaron. Sure. Uh so this was published last week. It is a little column about how bad the Mac App Store is, as if we didn't know. Uh except mm. This specific reason is that it's chock full of scam apps. And the title yeah. here, Don't Be Fooled, the Mac App Store is Full of Scams, takes us through uh, one uh, example in detail about trying to buy Microsoft Excel, an app that is not available on the Mac App Store. If you do a search for it, though, you get a lot of results. And some of them try to really sell themselves as Microsoft Excel, mm-hmm, um, except mm-hmm. they're not. They're like template packages in this instance. It's definitely not what's advertised. So uh, you can actually tour around, and he looks at Microsoft Word. He looks at Adobe InDesign, um, and then a search for Firefox or Chrome uh, as browsers gets you things that are not them, but that try to make you believe they are. And, uh, I mean, this is the whole premise of the Mac App Store, right? It's to have a walled garden, as the term is used, to show that this is the location for quality software. If you're here, then you should be able to trust what's there because Apple reviews all the software that gets submitted. Well, they may review that it works, but that seems to be as far as they take it because uh, there's all kinds of crap in there. And it's not just here too, right? Like we've we've seen these stories for iOS as well. You know, when it gets at one and a half million apps in there, a bunch right. of them are, are crap as well. Um, but these ones are definitely out to take your money. Uh, and uh, we don't know what Apple is doing about it, if anything. I mean, we can put the Mac App Store, think, in the same category as the Mac. So <laughs> go figure. But, I mean, also, he, he also points out that Apple's pocketing 30% of the money, too, which is, yeah. which is kind of all those, all equally dastardly, I guess, right? You know? It is. That is, you know. But on the other hand, uh, I don't think Apple cares about that money, to be honest, right? Like, they're, like they're not if they knew or cared enough about this whole issue, uh, they would give up that money in an instant. Um, it's just that, you know, they don't care. (laughs) That's what it comes down to. And anybody here who buys this software, they can get a refund. Uh, that, that process is not entirely clear to most people, but, uh, it's definitely available to them. Right. Right. Yeah, it is. I mean, his point in this is that it's not so much for us who are sort of I would think advanced users, but you know, for your mom and your dad who are looking for a word or office and, and they get fooled by these, these, uh, phony apps, right. And they totally. may not know about the refund process, right. They may not know yep. that all they have to do is contact Apple and, and get it back. Right. So, yeah, well, that process is not even terribly clear. Like you go to the app no. store and, um, you know, let me know how you can request a refund. I think it's probably through support. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, possibly. Right? There is a support link, and that takes you to a web page, and then you've got to contact them. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I can tell. I, I have an app that that has been the name of the app has been used by other people uh, in in sort of you know like they add a couple of words to the end of the name of the app. Um, and so, and I've had people buy my app, and I can see from the reports I get from Apple that some people have actually been refunded because clearly they, they bought my app when they were looking for the other guy's app, for instance, right? Right. Because um, it, it, you know, it looks the same or sounds the same in terms of its name, right? So, so and I used to wonder about that when I would see my report saying, you know, this many sales, and then you know this one is a negative sale, so I just assumed that was the guy getting his two bucks back or whatever. Well, you know, everything you guys are saying is is all true, but let me ask a different question. Uh, other than things like Microsoft in that example where there's a lot of name recognition there, is the situation on the Mac App Store any worse than it is just on the web in general? No, not at all. Yeah, right. At least at least with Apple, there's some recourse, whereas with some just random website that you buy something from, you don't really know what you're getting or who you're giving your credit card number to. Yeah, I think if you extend it out to the real world, um, we can find similar things um, thinking about uh, method hand soap, if anybody's seen that out on the store shelves at your local Walmart or Target, um, very distinctive teardrop-shaped bottle that they probably spent a lot of time getting done just right. right. Um, but if you look, immediately next to it on the shelf is the knockoff. It's the store brand, and I forget what Walmarts and Targets are. It's like up and up and Kirkland brand probably, I would guess. Um if you're not looking closely, like you think that you're picking the bottle of method that you want. So from the, the, the trade dress standpoint, I'm like, mm, I don't know that I'm not so bummed out by that one. What I am more bummed out about though, however, is the like, man, this thing clearly doesn't do what it says on the tin, right? Like yeah, the one that says, yeah. Oh, this lets you create documents. Like, no, it doesn't. It's just templates. And I would think an app reviewer like should clamp down on that one a bit more. Uh, whether it's the, you know, the right one they really wanted or not, you know, I'm kind of less, you know, hold up about that. But in terms of like, does it actually do what it says it does? I think they should be a little bit stronger on that. Otherwise, let the buyer beware, I guess. Yeah, I don't think that that would have been Apple's intention. Let's put it that way. When they created the App Store, that they did not either foresee or would have desired for this to be the outcome. But yeah, I don't think they're going to do anything about it. Well, I mean, it sounds from what we've been saying or from what we've been hearing that the the Mac App Store isn't all that in terms of what's what it's doing for anybody. So, yeah, it tends to get you know ignored quite a bit by a lot of people, right? Well, no, not by users. That's the thing, right? Like pe- Mac users still go there. Yeah, they buy their software, Ho- hoping there. to find something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've talked about that before. The fact that the the convenience of being able to go to the app store and know that you're getting the updates. It's unfortunate for developers who don't have all those other you know things we've we've nailed before about you know updates and you know so on and so forth. But yeah. um, for me, like I, I I I would if somebody put an app on the app store and I was interested in buying it, I would buy it there first. And, and I think you, Aaron, have said that as well, right? I just did it again um, uh, this last weekend on Friday, actually with the. Black Friday sales. Um, mm-hmm. Fantastical 2 was on sale for like 50% off. At this moment, it still is on sale yeah, for yeah. 50% off. I bought Reveal off. myself, yeah. Oh, excellent move, yes. And so yes. I, I bought Fantastical right off the Mac App Store. So in your hmm. face. 
<laughs> yeah, I think you were you were you were sitting on the fence on that one too, right? Well, I didn't so. want to buy it at first because I I'm, I've complained about this before. I really oh, just you want had the, the menu bar. Version, yeah. I did have the original version, but I just really want the menu bar calendar. I don't want like a full on desktop calendar. But couldn't say no to fifty percent off. I'm a mm-hmm. sucker for a deal. <laughs> so that was right on the Mac App Store, and I bought that. And and again, I benefited almost immediately because I bought it on my iMac downstairs, and then my MacBook Pro. I just went to the Mac App Store again and downloaded it. Boom. Instant. The way to go, man. Mm-hmm. It's a really good system. I still think the one biggest problem with, with not only the Mac App Store, but the iOS App Store or just iTunes App Stores in general is the is that the comment system is still completely broken. The fact oh, that, man. The fact that uh, it's it's weighed towards negatives just uh, just by the nature of it and the fact that a developer can't interact with their customer through these comments when if you read some of the comments the users fully believe that the that the uh developer can interact with them because they'll ask direct questions that just never get unanswered and it looks like the mm. the developer is inattentive when in reality there's there's no way to contact that user that's just the most broken thing if 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 that were fixed that would go a long way towards uh, having better customer support, better interaction with the users, better visibility into everything. Uh, if they just did that, it would I think it would improve things immeasurably. I wish I could put like that 100 emoji like in audio format right here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's kind of sad when like the the best possible thing you could do and and, and, and please don't do this. I'm not actually saying you should do this, but <laughs> is to get one of those those data dumps like I don't know. Um, who, who got hacked recently? Uh, like the Veterans Affairs or Ashley Madison or something, and use that as a way to find that user's name or username <laughs> and see if you're like, oh, let me send an email right here. Hey, I see you had an issue with my app 1.2. Let me help you out. Oh my god! Not at all creepy yeah. how I got yeah. to you, yeah, but it's, know, it's kind of like the best possible way. <laughs> but you know what we we have we have a we have one client who supports their app that way they they you know they have you know people who have problems onboarding or using the app or whatever um and it, we do have a support system which opens up a ticket and we can follow up with them but you know sometimes it's a negative review and and they're this particular client is very sensitive to the negative reviews and so they they do their damnedest to try and figure out who that person is and try and reach out to them and and satisfy them and it's a very frustrating thing you know again these this particular publisher feels that it's worth their time to go and and make sure that customer's happy right so right but that depends on the user registering or or yeah, giving their information or, yeah. to yeah. to the to the developer in some way yeah and and that uh, that's another sometimes it's necessary of course but but in general that's a a barrier to getting someone to use your app if they have to log yeah, in before they can sure. do anything so it helps but yeah. it's not uh, it's not the full solution. So- so if you're a listener to this show and you're not a developer, you're maybe a consumer of apps, and and trust me, the, the developers who make these apps feel sad when you write bad reviews, and we really would, really would like to make it rec- make it better for you, right? That's the reality of and that's why we do this, why we have this podcast, and why we all talk to each other about it, right? So reach out to us. Yeah, there is a contact us or, you know, like a developer website link in the show listing. Yeah, like that's, that's where you got to go, but it's just not clear. It's not clear that that's where you have to go to get support. True, and yet it's a requirement that Apple now makes us, you know, put in uh, whenever we do updates and stuff on older apps. Even they have you now put in a marketing or a support contact information that's that's required yeah. for us to put there. Yeah, so. well, I'm looking at say I'm looking at Fantastical's page on the Mac App Store right now, and the 
website and support links are in tiny print on the right side. Hmm. And a lot of people are going to miss that. Yeah, yeah. And I've tried using things like uh, Attentive, which is built into the app, which right. allows me to, to support the client. And, and uh, you know, and instead of, you know, when you ask for the review, do you like the app? Do you hate it? And if you say you hate it, it, it tries to intervene and get some feedback. And then that theoretically comes to me as in terms of an email. But I'll be honest with you, I've been running uh, this, this app or uh, Attentive on, on one of my apps for about two and a half years, and I've only ever gotten one email from it. So, mm. Um, oh, sorry. While I'm on the Fantastical page, a little real-time follow-up. Uh, it's 20% off, not 50% off. My apologies. Oh. We regret the error. It was still do a we, deal. Do we really? I don't hey, really regret while, it. I'm not burning while, here. While you're there, can you see what real... Uh, or So I guess um, Reveal is, is, uh, was your pick last week, but that was... I think it was 30 or 40% off. Um, that actually isn't um, on the Mac app store. So I'm going to their website right now. Okay. Uh, currently, I don't know if they have a deal on right now, but it's 59 us per person. Uh, that's their license for individual use. Right. Yeah. 120 per seat. If you're in a commercially license, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I didn't see, I'm not seeing any kind of, well, I yeah, guess it's over, yeah. right? <laughs> so, well, I, I tell you, I, it was, it was 20 or 30% off. I ended up paying in Canadian dollars, roughly $50. So it was, it was clearly like a 30% discount Sounds about based right. on the tra- exchange rate right now. Right. So hmm. Hmm. I want, I'm curious to find out how much people made, uh, through these, uh, black Friday sales on the, on the Mac app store and on the websites and Twitter and things like that. So, well, I'll tell you, um, you know, one one piece of advice I get all the time about independent Mac software development, uh, or iOS, of course, but any sale you make is a win, right? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, your marginal cost is zero, essentially, right? Except for support. If you right. if you have yeah. big support requirements, then yeah, you can you can start to lose money. But any sale is money in your pocket. True. Right, especially yeah. once the once the app is out in the store, it's you know it's sunk cost. So exactly, anything you can do to make back anything is is good. Yeah. And I think we mentioned that uh, the other week we were talking about that um, that other app store, the one that uh, is is starting to like the Netflix of of apps. Yes, yes, uh, uh, Panic or Paw. Mm, no, no, you mentioned the publisher, two things. Publishers that are, of Paw. No, <laughs> I know what you mean. It's the it's the one where it's it's gonna, they're going to clon- like a monthly fee, ten dollars a month. Yeah, and yeah, give yeah. A, we're uh, all join up you know sort of. You know, um, delaying here while we scroll back through the the show notes. <laughs> I don't know, but you know the one I'm talking about. The point there being, any Mac developer, Paw. wasn't it MacPaw? No, MacPaw is a totally different thing. Um, oh, that's the name of the company. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but I don't know yeah. what the thing is that they're making is called. That's the, that's the trick. Anyway, the point here is that uh, to answer the question of is it worth it for a developer to put their app in there, and my point there as now is if you're going to make any money from it then do it. Why not do it? Mm. That's it. So let's see. It's um, set app by uh, the founder and CEO of MacPaw, Alexander Kosovan. Boom. Yeah, I was close. You're you're so useful, Jaime. I just love having you here. He doesn't say anything. You know, he's so modest. He'll just, like, he's just sitting there. Yeah. like, yes, you're right. I am useful. No, he's he's doing that that uh, that pose that the um, rappers do, where they cross their arms and they just stand oh, back at the mic. You <laughs> Works great yeah, on radio. <laughs> well, I'm Mark dropped his though. mic earlier. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He did. It says everything. 
Mm-hmm. You want to go to the main topics here? Do you want to do some main sure. topics? Let's do a main Let's topic. Let's do some. Hey, sure. guess what? Which, which... Guys, you guys, Apple mm-hmm. can't build lots of different things. No way. That's me dropping the mic. I can't believe you saying that, of all people. Yeah, I'm pounding the drum. The drum says, you know, this uh, hundreds of billions of dollar company can only build one thing at a time. That's basically all they are. Hmm. Well, this is an article from Vox. Of all places, I mean Vox. My goodness, I don't know why. But uh, Matthew Glacius, uh, an Apple commentator. Let's, you know, give him a name. He's uh, he's written a, an editorial piece on Vox, basically saying that uh, Apple is a functional organization as opposed to a divisional organization. So when you have companies right. of a certain size, uh, and your traditional company, really, any company of any given size, is almost certainly going to be a divisional company. Well, they'll have a business unit in charge of, say, Windows. You know, guess which company I'm talking about? A division in terms of office and one in charge of Service. uh, services etc and they these divisions are almost like independent companies within the company they have their own p uh their own p l's profit and loss statements uh their their vps that head those divisions uh essentially compete with each other for the company resources and um you know for bragging rights and uh and pr- they protect their own turf uh, when it comes to other divisions who have their own initiatives. Uh, and that was a huge problem for Microsoft for many years because their Windows division um, was basically shutting down anything that would uh, threaten uh, the hegemony hmm. of Windows, like mobile, for example. So uh, Microsoft was sort of slowed down by the fact that it was divisional. And uh, they're a, a terrific example of that. So by contrast, Apple is a functional organization, whereas Everybody is working on everything, essentially. So you have uh, what we've come to recognize as a um, a very small group of executives at the top. Um, you've got Tim Cook. You've got Johnny Ive, who's in charge of design for everything. Uh, you've got Craig Federici, who's in charge of engineering for everything, um, and, and so on. And all these people... Um, represent uh you know and i think that that's the point that this article is making um a sort of a choke point that they're in very narrow funnel and only so many things can get through it at the same time so even though you've got a company that's huge and that has tons of employees and massive resources uh at the end of the day they they only have so much time to focus on given products and it seems that now that Apple is kind of looking around and saying, um, we re- really need to focus on fewer things because right now it's too much. And so we've seen the end mm-hmm. of displays, for example. They're out of the display business. And then last week we were talking about how they're out of the um, uh, the era router business. Uh, they're out of getting out of the peripheral business. Uh, those things are kind of going away. And this article uh, tends to explain uh, why why that is, uh, and that's the divisional structure, or functional structure, rather, and sort of brings up the question, should Apple be uh, divisional? And I don't think it makes a really big argument that it should be, because it would totally change the way that Apple is. I mean, it, it this, this, this structure of the company is kind of what makes Apple unique, I think. Um, and Gruber responded to this article as well. He posted about it earlier this week. I've got a link here, and that'll appear in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. Did he not put dates? Oh, yes, on Monday. So, um, and his take is basically, no, like, you know, this this is something that, that makes Apple what it is. 
And if you made this a divisional structure, then you'd probably end up with, with a very Microsoft style company. And that's definitely not something that we want to see because it was definitely not good for Microsoft. So in the early days, Apple was to a certain extent divisional because they at one point had two computer platforms vying for the same dollar, right? So they had the Apple II or the Apple line and then they had the Macintosh line and uh, there was there was that sort of structure in the early days, and I think that they've kind of moved around. I was talking to somebody from Apple today, as a matter of fact, and he was telling me uh, from what he understands about Apple, it's all about focus, and and uh, that's very it's a very important key word for them um, in terms of you know where they need to be, and and a lot of I guess decisions, and this kind of is sort of maybe a legacy from Steve Jobs is um that they kind of they try to pay attention to the things that are, that matter, and think maybe peripherals and stuff like that are. Uh, disappointing to us, Mac, Mac fanboys, um, something that they're not really going to be concerned about for too much longer, right? As you're saying, um, like because it, it used to be you'd buy the you'd buy the Mac or whatever it was, and there was like a choice of of different connectors for it or dongles, if you will, right? There's always been that bag of dongles, but um, you know. So, but I think very much so, it's about focus. He told me a story that he'd heard once about Steve Jobs that you know he sat down with Johnny Ive, and Johnny Ive said this in an interview that first thing Steve said to him in every meeting was how many times have you said no today? You know, meaning that, you know, you may get something presented to you and it, and it's, it's, you have to f- decide, is this the most important f- thing for me to be a- pay attention to today? And that m- culture may drive where Apple is going with, or where Apple is today, right? Exactly. Yeah, one big advantage with the, with the functional approach is that if you have one design team for the entire company, then every product that that company puts out has a, common design philosophy yeah Mm -hmm. and if you have one software team then all of the software is uh, ultimately based on the same you know same uh, set of code uh, repository or whatever Uh, and so it all has the same kind of a feel and it all kind of fits together Uh, and and that's given I believe a lot of well that's that's the reason for a lot of the uh, the ability of, of Apple to make stuff that just kind of works together Whereas if there was a separate, let's say, a peripherals division that made uh, routers and, and monitors, well, you wouldn't necessarily have that router. Maybe this is a bad example because it's going away. But you wouldn't necessarily have that router that just looks and feels and works well with all the other products seamlessly. Yep. Yep. You can use Claris as an example of that, too, because for the longest time, Apple had a division of so- software division that was almost like not even, unless you knew it was it was attached to the company, it didn't really seem to be, right? They're FileMaker, um, right? Yeah, they're FileMaker now, but they, yes, right. Uh, but they, they, you know, they used to have Claris Works, and they used to make like office competitive products under that sort of banner. And, and, you know, I think probably a large percent of Mac users didn't even know it was a choice or an option or that it was even Apple, right? Right. Except it was a cow dog. You were talking about uh, a thousand no's for every yes, that term. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I pasted a link into the show notes from that video, Apple's uh, product strategy, right? Uh, so that's, remember that from 2013, WWDC, that video. Yeah, the intention video, yeah. That's it. It's called intention. There you go. Mm-hmm. So Some guy I know used it in a talk a couple of months ago. I wonder who that was. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. So Jim, could it could it have been you at the at the <laughs> yeah, matter, As a matter of fact, it was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. the, the hint was that Jaime laughed at that, and he was at that conference. <laughs> right. Boy, that's some that's inside baseball, man. I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So the question I have is, what's changed? Right. 
like the iPhone has been out since 2007, the iPad since 2010, and it's only in the last year or so, maybe the last three years, if we if we start with the Mac Pro, where they seem to have kind of tailed off, especially against the Mac, right? I wonder what's happened inside of Apple that is it's suddenly the case. Maybe it's not so long. Have we, how long have we been without Steve? Since 2011. Oh, it's okay, been five so years. Three years. So yeah. it didn't happen right away. I mean, they started, they, they made the watch, right? The watch was just starting development in 2011, we hear. And it was around 2013 that it was launched. Maybe that's what's happened is that they're, they're focused on these more modern products. And, you know, the Mac is just tailing off because it's too many things. Uh, but it, it mm. does seem to me that there is something going on. I want to believe. Here's what I want to believe, and who knows. So uh, I want to believe that uh, that they have a strategy in mind for the Mac, that it's not dead, and that it's 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 getting different kinds of attention. Yeah, but it could be what Legasset was saying about the the fact that the you know the PC market in general is declining, and you know that may just be a a wave that's happening. I mean, I mean. How much more attentive are we to the little iPhones and Android bo- that we have in our in our palm, you know, than we would have been on the Macs? You know, I, I talk about when I was a nomad. We used to call ourselves digital nomads with our with our laptops, you know, with our little green power books and um, you know, our, and our modems and our power bricks. And and we were we were the outliers in terms of how we use computers because most people had a desktop unit and they went and sat at their desk, you know. Um, today I work in an office where there isn't, there isn't a single desktop in the entire place. Everybody's on a laptop, right? Whether it's a PC or a Mac, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's because, as I think Jaime or you said, it's become more mainstream that the, that the laptop is the computer, right? And that we're all absorbed in our, we all do tons of things with our phones. I mean, everybody at work, you know, you, you look over any desk and I'd say 30% of the people, are, you know, are checking some status of something on, on their phone during the whole day, right? So that's changed. I mean, in terms of in terms of how ubiquitous, you know, mobile smartphone technologies have come in, in the last few years, right? And I think that's cannibalizing the the desktop or the need of a desktop, right? In terms so of by desktop get... do you mean do you mean Macintosh or do you mean I mean like I mean Macintosh, yeah, yeah. I mean the Macintosh experience. I mean, you know, it, like whether it's a laptop or or uh, you know, the thing that okay. sits on your desk and you do your your computing work on, whether it's, you know, uh email or Excel or or Xcode or, you know, God forbid, Android Studio. Um you know, what, what it is that you do during a day. But, you know, I think we're all, you know, I ride the subway and the streetcars all day long and, and everybody's got, everybody, everybody. I mean, I'm surprised homeless people don't have smartphones. I'm sure that some of them do. Many of them do. Many of them do. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like, it's become so ubiquitous in society that that's sort of where we're, that's changed quite a bit. And like I said, that you asked what, what changed I think that's one of the major things that's changed in the last, you know, three or four years. Right. Right. And so we can see a decline in, in desktop operating systems let's say yeah call it that. yeah um in general, and, yeah. because because the jobs to be done to to employ a horace dedu term is is being subsumed by more mobile applications so mm-hmm. you have phones and you have tablets that are doing more of the things that people had desktops for and, and more server-based documents and things like that right so yeah exactly yeah that's the other big thing is the move to the cloud so that these mobile devices make more sense and so there are fewer people and will continue to be fewer people over time that need a Macintosh. Right. But, right. you know, you and me and Mark and Jaime are going to need Macs for a long time to come, like a really long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So they can't stop making them, but, you know, can they stop innovating on them? Can they stop improving them? Well, I mean, and, and so if you look at what Microsoft is doing, they're taking their Surface product and they're they're trying to supplant the their desktops, laptops and, and you know, desktop computers with uh, the Surface devices, right? They're trying to say, okay, here's the full, I mean, I walked into the, the Microsoft store a couple of weeks ago and I actually opened up Photoshop, real live Photoshop on a, on a Microsoft Surface. Then I realized, oh my God, what am I doing? It's a Surface and walked away from it. But, <laughs> but the fact that I was able to open an actual Adobe product directly on, on a um, platform device that only had the only interface was a touchscreen, right, was amazing. You know, and that's I think that's going to become something that's that's going to be very hard for the desktop computing uh, platform to challenge, right? Yeah, that's something I really wanted to get a chance to try, but I, I haven't been able to make it to a mall. Um, and now that it's December, by the time you listen to this, listeners, uh, I'm not I don't want to go anywhere near one. <laughs> so I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm, it's not going to be until 2017, I think. Oh, don't worry. You can, go to, you can go to the Microsoft store. There's nobody in them. <clears throat> the Microsoft store is at Yorkdale Mall, Tim. I'm not going there. Oh, that's true. There's one at the Eaton Center, actually, now. There's one closer. That's to even They're worse. Creeping in. They're creeping in. I'm sure there'll be one in Scarborough in no time. No, definitely not. Whew. But it's a mall. Still a mall. Don't want to go to one. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, to, to my thinking, um, you know, Microsoft made an interesting bet. I think they had no choice but to make that bet, to integrate right. uh, their their traditional desktop operating system with a touch-based operating system. Uh, they, they appear to be starting to bear the fruits of that labor. The... Um, the reviews that I saw of the Surface Studio, uh, which we talked about, right, in the when it first came yeah. out, yep. um, they seem kind of mixed. I mean, like the the applications for it uh, seem very uh, they accrue very heavily to illustrators uh, and people who draw, uh, and not so much to pretty much any other use case. <laughs> you know, the the, the dial and the pencil uh, are made custom made for art and uh, and for drawing, and so uh, I just don't see a huge uh, use of that kind of paradigm for your traditional computer user. I mean, if you can generalize such a thing, um, they're not going to, they're not going to get this unless, uh, they are struck by some artistic endeavor. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I think Apple on, you know, conversely is looking at the same situation and saying, you know, we, we can afford, uh, to, to have two different operating systems, but clearly one is not as important as the other. Um, and so yeah. it, we may see this pattern repeat itself. The one that we saw earlier this, uh, this month, November, when Microsoft had its event and kind of, you know, widened our eyes, uh, because they're so, sort of being forced to, whereas Apple <clears throat> can keep its innovation fully focused on iOS and sort of let Mac OS, you know, I'm not going to say tail off, but you know, more leisurely pace. It's true. Yeah. Well, one of the people I follow on uh, Twitter is a game developer, and uh, he tweeted that he just received his Surface Studio. So I'll have to keep an eye on him. Maybe I'll reach out to him and ask him what he thinks about it. Hmm. You know, and conversely, I I, I know at least one person um, on Twitter, and he works for Mozilla, and he was a Mac user for many years. And oh, he no. Just, he just bought his first um, Windows laptop. I believe it was a Dell. Wow. Yeah, Dell XPS. And uh, so he's been writing a little bit about it. It's uh, Blake Winton. You know Blake? I don't. I probably met him at Taco, but I don't know him personally, no. Yeah, great guy. And 
uh, he's, he's made a very unusual decision. It'd be interesting to see how, how long he lasts, but, uh, windows of course, being the chief problem in terms of adapting to a different platform yeah. altogether. Well, I lived through the, the windows pu- desktop publishing era when, you know, the Adobe's and the quarks and all that kind of stuff switched over to them for a while. Right. It was pretty scary stuff. <sighs> Chilling. Don't well, like not to mention the hardware reliability is not that great at all. When you buy these cheap Windows machines from right. Dell or wherever, hard to, I, I've, I remember when I had to use them for, for work back in the day, you'd get a new one every few months because they just break. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> disposable yeah. computers, yeah. Pretty much. You know, it, something would go wrong, you'd just take it down to you know IT and get a new one wow. every, every few months. Yeah. Ugly. Yep. I hate to say I have a ThinkPad sitting on my desk right now. Ooh. It's closed, but it's there. Yeah, those I think are a little little bit better. That's yeah, IBM, I think right? Lenovo and so it's yeah, Lenovo yeah. and, and uh, yeah. They bought that and they bought it for my yeah, yeah. Yeah, same people. And Sony Sony Vio and, and Lenovo who have always been like in terms of if you're gonna buy a computer and you didn't want to buy a Mac, that would be sort of the to me that would be the equivalent in terms of quality of workmanship and stuff. Mm-hmm. So. mm-hmm. Notwithstanding Windows. Well, you know, in my time, I have seen some nice PC hardware. Um, I think Microsoft is probably one of the better vendors out there today, which is weird given that they haven't been doing it for yeah. terribly long. But they, they make great-looking hardware, and I, I find the Surface line altogether uh, to be fascinating. Uh, I You know, I'm, I'm a little jealous. I'm not going to lie to you. But when you get to using it and it's Windows, that operating system is just never going to pass muster with me. It's never going to do it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the answer is. Well, I know what the answer is. I'm sticking with the Mac. And then one day, maybe in the distant future, I'm going to be on iOS. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's going to be a very different iOS. You guys got anything else to say about this? Uh, Apple's focus? No, we've, we've been having the same conversation for three months now. So I think we can talk about something else, don't you? Come on, how yeah. how long have we been doing this show? I mean, that's been longer than three months. Sorry, Mark. Let's talk about something that you are interested in, though. Jaime, you want to look at protocol-oriented programming? Yeah, this is a blog post by uh, Chris Eidhoff, the founder of ObjectC.io. The um, I don't think they're around anymore from a blogging standpoint, but I think they still have like books and videos. I think that they yeah do. they it's just uh, they just published an advanced Swift book, mm-hmm. which well, was also you know, on sale. <laughs> So in this article, um, Chris talks about protocol-oriented programming, which I think has become sort of a a hot new thing that everybody's been really interested in. And uh, in it, he sort of takes the tack that it's, you know, it's not a silver bullet, which, I mean, I guess is true of most technology and and, and other techniques and everything. But I don't know, if you're me, I don't know that you would really know that given, like, just follow any of, like, the Swift newsletters in particular, right? Protocol-oriented programming is like the hot thing. And it does kind of seem to me personally, and, and Chris kind of covers it here, that it's being used in places like that don't necessarily make you know the most sense. And it goes to this this one little example of a, a web service class that loads entities from the network using URL session. And, and how kind of at the very end, it's like it may or may not have been worth the effort to go through that and try to make it protocol-oriented because you keep running into these weird little like you know, corners and, and pointy bits and edge cases. Uh, and at the very sort of tail end, he, he kind of comes to the conclusion of like, you know, there's, 
it's kind of more of a case by case basis as, as to what you're going to use. Uh, and he uses a couple other things like you know, object oriented programming and uh, functional programming and subclassing and other things. Uh, and proposes that it might be useful to think about whether your protocol, if you're going to do that, is going to go with um, modeling data or behavior. And, and saying for data, uh, just like a simple struct is probably easier. Um, but for complex behavior, like uh, delegates with multiple methods, a protocol is, is maybe easier. And having seen some things that are kind of cool, like um, let's say table views, and if let's say you have a table view or a collection view that has cells of like radically different types, let's say you have some sort of like you know, news feed sort of thing where one cell is a video, the other one is you know transactions that you've had recently, and the other one is like you know a music player or something. I can see how that that protocol oriented piece sort of really works, and I think under the covers, and I haven't looked at the code. I think that's what Instagram's um, IG list kit is doing. I remember them having like this one protocol method that you would sort of implement and it would do the magic for you. Right. Uh, and you can see how that would adapt as well itself pretty well to the table view, but it's not necessarily like useful for, or, or even like the best way of doing things for, for many cases. And if you've ever looked at like Swift three's handling of uh, ranges, it gets really sort of bizarre when you look under the covers and say, what, what, why doesn't this work? Oh, because it doesn't conform to that protocol okay, but, but why? Like, what, what's the reason for that? And I think even Apple itself sort of ran into that sort of same limitation. And I'm kind of curious. So offline, uh, Mark had this this one sort of topic that he was running through. I'm kind of curious, Mark, if you wanted to sort of sure, summarize yeah. what you ran into. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with, with what you're saying is that, is that, yes, I mean, protocols are awesome and protocol-oriented programming is, is, is great too. But I, I think the pendulum may have swung a little too far Towards the you know subclasses are evil kind of uh, uh, mindset that that a lot of people seem to have these days. And uh, one, one example, the one I think you're referring to is was when I when I started using Swift three, uh, the first thing I, I tried to do, or one of the first things I tried to do, was use the approach toward uh, HTTP requests and 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 uh, and sessions that I've been using for years now, uh, where. I have a subclass of NSURL request for each service that I need to talk to. So if your app needs to talk to multiple services, it's real simple. You just put everything related to that service, like what, what headers need to be set custom for, for your request or, or your base URLs and all that. I just put that in a subclass of NSURL request. And anytime I need it, I just grab an instance of whichever one I need and everything is just set up beautifully, nice, everything's clean and and, uh, and, and well abstracted. But in Swift 3, they went and changed NSURL request from a class to a struct. Right. So now that's all broken. You can't do any of that anymore. And and I spent, you know, some time, a couple of days trying to figure out what's what's the best way to do this with this new approach. And I thought about using POP and protocols and all that. And I ended up not even doing that in the end. I mean, <clears throat> basically, I just ended up having a... Okay, yeah, I just had a, a basically a, a, well, a custom struct for each API, essentially, that I use. And inside that struct was a function that did all the same setup. So I would use a, uh, a, a sort of a generic URL request. No, just... Yeah, no, it's not NSURL request. It's just called URL request and call that function on each one. And it, it works fine. You know, it, it's okay. Um 
but to me, it's not as clean. It's not as encapsulated. It's not as elegant uh, as having this this uh, you know this subclass solution that worked for years. So I, I don't really know why it was changed. If anyone knows, you know, I'd be real curious to hear why it was changed, why that decision decision was made. I hope it wasn't made just because you know everything should be a quote everything should be a struct now instead of everything should, should be a class. But yeah, so so I agree. Well, that that is kind of the sort of the given best practice these days that if you can, if you want to make something start out with a struct and if you need to mutate it then or mutate members of it, then then convert it to a class. So that may be part of the reason why they, they went that route. Right. But but you figure for in, in this particular case, so yeah. you create your you keep uh, create your URL request as a var. Sure. No problem. It's mutable. It's fine. Uh, and inside there's a, potentially all this customization you have to do customizing the headers if you have to put in a uh an access code or or you know custom kind of uh, um you know custom kind of response type or mime type or whatever any any of that kind of stuff then anytime you want to use that thing you have to set all those things and yeah you can do what i did just make a function to do all that and you just call it call that function every single time you need one of these things and it and it, like mm-hmm. I said, it works fine. I mean, it's it's not a big deal once you set it up. But there was something elegant about the subclass encapsulating all that. And, uh, you know, I, I get the concept of multiple inheritance is bad and, and not mm-hmm. even possible. But, but that's sort of up to you. In my mind, that's sort of up to you as a developer to use. That's a, It's a tool that you have. Subclassing is a tool that you have. If you use it correctly, it works great, which right. is why people have been using it for 20 or 30 years. So, so to to say that it's it's best practices to use structs all the time. Well, yeah, I'm not saying maybe. it's the best practice. That's sort of <laughs> that's sort of the, that's sort of the given advice, and that comes along yeah, with sort of what yeah. Jaime was sort of saying, it's, or that Chris Idoff is saying that it's not a magic bullet. I mean, right, you know, right, right. I, I yep. read an, another interesting advice piece uh, a couple of days ago, talking about, in a similar way, talking about story boards versus nibs. Some, sometimes a lot of people, a lot of people just these days seem to just create storyboards because they think that's the flavor of the week. When in fact, a perfectly good nib would do just the job just as well, and probably with less hassle in the multi-developer environment, right? Uh, all right. Well, that, that's a big kind of, yeah. Yeah, you just threw out the gauntlet there, Tim. Holy smokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly, if you need to create a custom view without a view controller, then you must use a nib if you're going to use it in interface building because you can't do that in in storyboards. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think think there's a big... Person. Yeah, I, so, I do so too. I, I do. Yeah. I, I do too. But there, there seems to be a big apprehension against using it in a large group because of the the whole merge conflict issues, right? That that happen when when multiple yeah. people touch other parts of the storyboard. That yeah. said, you know, a little bit of effort and and uh, you can you can figure out you can work your way out of a merge conflict. Yeah, you know, by es- editing, especially editing now that they that they added yeah. uh, storyboard references in iOS eight. I think it was true. It, it yeah, made that yeah. made that whole thing in my mind kind of a boot point. Because you can always split up your storyboards into more uh, functional units as opposed to divisional units. Functional units that you know one developer can be working <laughs> on and then check it in, and you know not too many people, other people necessarily need to be working on that same functional unit at the same time. So I mean, yeah, you could argue that well, that's what nibs were doing too, but mm-hmm. but at least you get a little bit more of the transitional structure like segues and things like that mm-hmm. with segues so do you want to bring it back to 
protocol or your programming or <laughs> I mean I'm not sure what else I, I really have to say but I do think that that pr- protocols are are great when they're used well um mm-hmm. you know especially as a way to sort of hide what it is that you're you're talking to uh it certainly makes it a lot easier to, to do tests and whatnot um and, and and plug in different things um and and with the way that it's you know, done in Swift. I actually do like the way that protocols are kind of less of a hassle than they were in uh, in Objective C. Um, mm-hmm. And protocol extensions are, mm-hmm. are a pretty nice thing that you couldn't do in Objective C. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think I just wanted to bring this one up because it caught my mind. as like, man, like I have seen some code. that's like I I can't even tell what this is doing because there's like too many inception levels deep in there for what should be a rather, a rather, you know, easy operation and straightforward operation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've been on a kick. Uh, the flavor of the week on more just code podcast has been uh, machine learning. And, and I think you've got a piece here from Amazon. I do. So uh, as of this recording, um, Amazon's reinvent conference is going on. And so they've released a whole bunch of good stuff. And the one thing that, or one of the things I thought was interesting to bring up was uh, Amazon recognition. That's recognition with a K like mortal Kombat. So if you're going to go Google searching for that one, um, make sure you use K instead of C. Um, it's a new API that they're making available that, you know, under the covers uses um, uh, computer vision and, and, you know, machine learning to understand what it is that you're giving to it in form of uh, images and the uh, image that they give in the example uh, in the blog post that we're linking to in the show notes is um, this guy's dog, right? And you can see like there's a picture of the dog and then sort of like the different things that this could possibly be according to the machine and, and the various confidence levels, right? It thinks, okay, thinks this is an animal, thinks this is a dog, thinks this is a golden retriever. So I got the breed and thinks this is a pet sort of uh, generically. Mm-hmm. Um, and gives you uh, this nice little easy JSON structure with that. And uh, I thought that was pretty neat to bring up because um, this is the sort of thing that's, you know, it's not unique. Um, Google has a, a competitor product. Um, Microsoft or Bing has a, a product. Could have sworn Facebook had something, but they, they may have shut it down after an acquisition. I can't remember. Um, but uh, if you're listening to this podcast, odds are pretty good somewhere. You're probably using AWS because they're like, number one with this sort of thing. So this is right. just like yeah. another easier way. And according to their, the blog post, the free tier has like 5,000 images per month that you can have analyzed and store face vectors for uh, each month, 1,000 per each month for up to an entire year. So it looks oh. like there's a limit there. So Apple is, is kind of conspicuously absent in that list of, of people who are offering this kind of thing. Although it's interesting because they have the, the, the low level tools to do all this. The, you know, the, the accelerate framework, which we've been talking about is really powerful and it could do any of this. They just need, would need to write a layer on top of it to do all this. I, I, I wonder if, if the reason that Amazon is able to do this so well is because they've been running their cloud services for so long. They've had access to enormous amounts of data. To, to train this uh, mm-hmm. this this giant uh, uh, neural network or whatever, so they have so they have they've they've had the data to build solid tools to do this, and probably Google is the same way, and maybe Apple hasn't had as much access through through iCloud, uh, or maybe it's it's 
it's uh, more encrypted or protected or, or whatever. But, but for whatever reason, Apple has not come up with a solution like this, which is sort of surprising. Well, they Although do have... I'm sorry, Mark, but they do have something like they, they that's part of iCloud now, right? With photos. So yeah, they do. Yeah. But, th- but that's what I'm saying. So that's why I threw in that it, it might be more locked down and more protected so that Apple isn't looking at your photos where maybe Amazon is. I don't know this. I'm Clearly just, is. I'm just, uh, I'm just, uh, uh, guessing here. Um, but, uh, you know, Apple's is, I think it's moving in that direction it, with the new, you know, the latest version of photos, it, it has the memories where it's, it's sorting things by, uh, location and, and date, so it's 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 sort of they're sort of moving in that direction of classifying photos so that you can do useful things with the content of the photos as opposed to just having a, a big pile of photos that are you know, indetermined. But you know what's what's inside them. So maybe we'll see something like this moving forward. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it, it's it seems like that that's something that Apple ought to be working on. So a bit of a sidebar, do you, the Photos app on iOS has gotten a lot better. And do you think it's it, – is, is it Photos? It's the actual photo app that's doing the machine learning, kind of sorting yes. out your people and your locations and stuff, right? Well, and whether it's so, a selfie or not or – Yes. Yes, it is. It is, although it's probably not training the data. It's, it's, oh, I so, see. Right, yeah. So to, to make a, a, a machine learning – uh, network, like a neural network or something like that, you have to train it with a lot of data so it knows how to recognize things. It knows what, what to look, essentially what to look for in, mm-hmm. in just, you know, just a stack of bits, right? Which is really what a photo is to a computer. It's just, a, it's a pile of bits. And how do you get from a pile of bits to knowing that that's a dog or, or that's a person or, or, or that's a cat? So you have to train this giant network to be able to recognize certain patterns in the bits as a cat. And that's still a little bit too powerful to be doing on the fly on on a mobile device. Mm-hmm, uh, although mm-hmm. you know, who knows? Eventually, we'll be there. But 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 you on a on a server farm, it's it's getting reasonably easy. And that's and that yeah. was my point about Amazon having the data and Google having the data to do all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. but once you've got that whole network trained and and you have a set of of model parameters that say you know when you take a an, a raw image. And you crank through this model using these 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 uh, model parameters. You get out. This is likely a cat, or this is likely a dog. Right. Yeah. Uh, then you can do it. That stuff is very quick to do on a mobile device, and that's why, again, conjecture, but but it makes a lot of sense. That's why in iOS 10, uh, the uh, BNNS was was uh, library was added. The Basic Neural Network Service. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's what it was called. Uh, was added to the Accelerate framework because I'm sure they're using that behind the scenes in the Photos app. And if if, if you remember what that is, that's a set of routines to evaluate neural networks once you've got all the training done. So you've got the training, you've got the parameters, you can set up a neural neural network using those parameters and then run it very quickly on the phone. And that's what the Photos app is doing in the background. Hmm. But it it isn't doing the training, though. That's not built in. All that... I bet you at Apple and there's there's some private APIs that that do exactly that. I'm sure there are, there are. Yeah, and they call them security updates. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, it's it's not that that stuff's not secure. No, I'm kidding. Okay, yeah. yeah, it's 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 that it's just too numerically intensive to be a good experience on a mobile yeah. device these days. Well, I think I mentioned on the show just a, a bit of an end point here. Um, there was an app called Google Goggles for a one, at one point. I don't know if you remember that, it was about mm-hmm. three or four mm-hmm. years ago. And you could take a pic. You could like take a, take a picture of your Mac, and it would go to Google, and it would find 
it would tell you what the model of Mac you were running was kind of thing. Like as well, it would tell you it was a computer, laptop, whatever. And it might even find you one on Amazon as an example. It was, I think it was sort of a, you know, a marketing thing sort of to drive, you know, what they could do with business. And I don't know whatever happened to that, but it was kind of cool. Mm. So, yeah. It was a Google product. What do you think happened to it? I don't know. It just went away. Just went away. They just closed it down, right, Aaron? They did the research and they closed it down. Right. Yeah. So in this case, so, this is something you can you can add to to take advantage of. And I think, as Mark and others uh, astutely pointed out, they've been building this data set. And presumably, I, I haven't checked the license terms. When you use this, you are giving them license to let them use the learnings at the very least, if not save the data, like you know the picture of your your dog Rover, um, uh, for some period of time. At the very least, the extra training that they're getting from the model is probably um, what they have license to. So it's hypothetically going to get better and better over time. And I'd, I'd be very curious to see, I'm, I'm struggling to think of a real good example of what I'm about to say, but like uh, I can imagine that Amazon is pretty good at some of these things um, because they have sort of canonical examples from their store. Right. Um, this is a, yeah, yeah. a picture of a dog because like they got pictures for like dog collars and leashes and sweaters and all sorts of things related to dogs. And, and of course, they have, you know, people's faces and stuff like, you know, uh, people modeling clothing and, and whatnot and, and real canonical ones and say, like, look, this is like came for the manufacturer. This is perfect. This is exactly, you know, the latest LeBron Nike Air shoes. Um, I'd be very curious to find some sort of product and I'm struggling to like at the moment off the top of my head to think of like something that they wouldn't normally have in Amazon, the, you know, the everything store and see how their recognition works with that. Or if it's even, you know, going to recognize certain things like, um, I don't know, like endangered uh, animals. But, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, and then I started to think, well, there's probably like WWF stuff there for like, you know, buy this book or buy this bag and it's something yeah. that goes to the world wildlife fund mm. or the minority yeah. report kind of thing you know exactly yeah, yeah. even if fiancés at amazon i hear <laughs> <laughs> but do you think there's a sinister side to this i think that we kind of skirt around this sometimes right but i, I kind of get a tone from aaron and, and mark about you know the other side of what what are they doing with our images right or our data you think there's really a sinister side to it? Yeah, uh, uh, there's potential for a sinister side of it. Uh, I, I don't think that Amazon or Google are, are intentionally doing anything sinister today. Uh, I, I I really think the the, the intentions are good, uh, and most of the effects are positive. Uh, but but there's always the potential for for. Uh, misuse, uh, for example, um, you know, ads, right? So most yeah. of the time, ads are, are a reasonably good thing. They're annoying, but they're a reasonably good thing. They present you stuff that you might be interested in, and and you know, give you an opportunity to learn about things that you, you might buy. So overall, in general, not a bad thing. Annoying, yes, but you know, a reasonably positive thing. Uh, but they can be misused to give misleading information and. And uh, and try to sell you stuff that is fraudulent or bad or or not good for you or whatever or whatever. So there's all, there's a potentially a bad side of that too, a negative side of that too. Uh, so yes, in that sense, I think there's a there's potential. Uh, the other the other lot more long range thing is that 
since it's digital data, it, it never goes away. So although the, the guardians or the custodians of the data today are, are perfectly good, uh, who knows who's going to have that data in 10 years, 20 years, and what they might want to do. Maybe it doesn't matter. If it's, it's, if it's a picture of your dog in 20 years, who cares, right? But, but you could, I'm sure you could come up with some situation where, where if, if the wrong person had access to the wrong photo, then uh, it could be a, a problem. So, yeah, I think there is a potential for a sinister side. Well, I mean, and, and if I had pictures of, if I stored my pictures on Google Photos, for instance, and, and one day I got a Facebook link saying, here's some dog food for your dog, Mac. I mean, I think that, that might draw the line for most people, right? Across the line for most people, I should say. But that's, that's the kind of thing that I worry about, you know, with these online surfaces to a certain extent. But I'm not, I'm not talking about image detection technologies, and I think that's all great stuff. And I think that's only going to advance technology and, and make our phones and our computers better in the long run, right? So, but there is that, there is that sort of, you know, uh, tinfoil hat kind of uh, worry as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm not even sure it's like quite as much tinfoil hat. Uh, you can find a very concrete example in one of the unnamed major ride-sharing companies allegedly abused its uh, location services information to try to really put the screws on a, a mm. journalist that was, you know, right. writing stuff right. that was critical yes. of the company. Yes, I heard about this. Yep. Right, and yep. and yep. Uh, granted, it's different because that's a, you know that's a private company. It's a a small company so it's not quite the size of google facebook or amazon or microsoft um but i think it does raise the point of like well if if the wrong stewards are in place bad stuff can happen because the information is there and and it's always there yeah and i think well i think and as mark sort of said the stewards can change over time right so yeah yeah i mean if you know if if worst case scenario uh amazon suddenly was in financial trouble and and they were about to go out of business somehow, right? I'm not saying it's anywhere close to that, but let's say that happened. That did happen well, in the 90s to a lot of companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so so now Amazon has all this data, and and they get they get a new CEO in charge who's total. You know, his his job is to make the company look as financially good as possible, so they can sell it off to someone. Well, one thing they might do is start selling off assets to try to raise money. And one asset that they have is all of your data. <laughs> so true. I'm not saying it'll ha- it's not, it's not happening today, but you know, it could happen at some point in the future. And there's, there's very little we can do about it really. Well, and terms happens. and conditions change all the time. I mean, and that's yeah. one of the terms and conditions you agree to. Right. Um, cause I, I see that all the time in different services that I use, you know, they, I get an email from the, Oh, by the way, our terms have changed. And, and do we really read through that? I don't think so. Right. 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 But, but yeah, you never know what you're, what you're kind of agreeing to, um, <laughs> blindly in a lot of cases. Right. Did you ever see the South Park episode, the human sent iPad? The human, which sent iPad? No, no. Human scent, like smell scent. No. Nope. So there was this horrible, terrible horror movie called the human centipede a couple of years ago. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I think you told uh, me a bit about this. Yeah, and and if you haven't seen it, well, you probably don't want to. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's probably not safe for work, right? It's, it's definitely not, not safe no, for definitely work. Not. not safe for kids. It's very, very bad. So, South, <laughs> but South Park did a South Park did a, a a spoof of it called the Human Sentai Pad, 
Oh, sent iPad. Okay. Sent iPad. Yeah, where where they were getting people to agree to some pretty horrible things by sneaking it into the into the, the terms of service uh, agreements that nobody ever reads, and people were just agreeing, 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 and they were agreeing to some pretty awful stuff that that uh, that South Park went into lots of lots of gory detail about as as they wow. like to do. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Okay. So we put a nail in this main topic part of the mm-hmm. show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Aaron, you still awake? Yep, right here. All right, cool. All right, well, let's do some picks. Um, let's go with any order that are on the document here, then. Let's do Mark. Do you have a pick? I do. And interestingly enough, it's it's uh, ripping that nail out on that last topic because it's oh, related. Oh, wow. Okay. So, <laughs> so uh, as as you probably know if you've been listening to the show for a while, I'm, I'm not big on third-party libraries. Uh, I kind of feel like most no. things, unless, unless there's something proprietary or just so custom that, that you can't write it yourself, uh, you should... Then, then you shouldn't use a third-party library. You should just run it yourself because that's how you that's how you learn and that's how you know what's in there and that's how you future-proof your products. But but anyway, given all that, I'm going to recommend a third-party library. All right. Uh, I, I found one uh, called the AI Toolbox, which is just real nice because it's it's just a big collection of all sorts of of functions and routines for doing machine learning and and it's I mean it's called AI, but it's really machine learning stuff. It's kind of the same. Uh, it's it's by a guy named Kevin Koble. Don't know who he is, except he's got a nice library, uh, and it's it's just chock full of good stuff. It's got routines to to do linear regression, logistic regression, neural networks, support vector machines, k means, which is a, a, a method for you know classifying uh, unknown properties of of, uh, of clusters of, of things, um, principal component analysis, which is a way of just figuring out. Uh, what are the main components? Like, you know, what what are the items in a in an image that make it that that make it a dog? Uh, you can you can pull out those things and then apply that to other images that have dogs and things like that. So, what's nice about it is it's just it's got tons of stuff and it's all in Swift and it's all open source. You can dig in and see how to do it all. So, it's worth checking out. Uh, the link is in the show notes. Some of these look pretty familiar uh, for graphs and trees, like mm-hmm. depth versus breadth first search. Yep. yep. Um, I'm not really sure what beam search is. So it didn't take very long for me to recognize something that I did not recognize. So a known mm-hmm. unknown there. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, did you happen to, to know a lot of these? Like, did you recognize? Um, yes. Uh, it looks like statistical from what I can see. Yeah. A lot of them, because I've been working with some machine learning stuff lately, a lot of them are very familiar. Like for example, uh, the ones I mentioned, actually most of them, linear regression, nonlinear regression, logistic regression, neural network support vector machines. Those are kind of the, the classic machine learning tools. Uh, and, uh, if, uh, uh, I guess this is a follow-up. If you, if you check out that course that I mentioned a week or two ago, he talks about all of these techniques in that course. So okay, cool. if you want to know what those are, you can take the course and then you can look at, look at this guy's code and see a good implementation of it. Well, an implementation of it. I don't, I don't know if it's good or not, but it's an, an implementation of it. Uh, some other things, um, that, I, yeah, I've seen a lot of them before, just, uh, come across them in over, over the, over time. Um, but not all of them. Uh, I don't know what a beam search is either, actually. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, it sounds cool. 
Yep. And gets straight to the point. It's like a laser beam. It doesn't dilly-dally going wide or deep. It just gets straight to what you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in terms of follow-up from a couple of weeks ago, it has the Apache license. Is that a good license? The Apache license. Apache license 2.0, probably. Oh. Yeah, made available through Apache license, it says. Mm-hmm. It's pretty permissive. Yeah, I think that's a good one. Yeah. 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 All right. The, I'm looking at the terms and conditions right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, Gret's, uh permanent, irrevocable license to uh, prepare derivative works, uh, patents, redistribution. Yeah, I mean it's open source, so it's it's a uh, if you I'd have to scan it more closely to to see what the full details are, but but generally, since if something's open source and you use it in a commercial product, well, sometimes you can't use it in a commercial product like a GNU license, uh, you cannot use it in a commercial product, but other licenses allow you to use it as long as you attribute the hmm. person who uh, oh right who yeah. produced it. And mm-hmm. I know the MIT license is like that. And I think with a quick scan of this one, I think this one is like that as well. Right. I think you just yeah. need to in- include it as a, an attribution. Say, hey, we're using this. It, you probably shoved it in your settings or some other mm-hmm. you know, dark bowels of your app somewhere. I was going to mm-hmm. say, where and how do you normally do that kind of thing? So, Well, you usually have – you're supposed to have uh, some kind of a page, an uh, info page or something like that where you – where you reference any any libraries that you used. Uh, I don't know how uh, faithfully most people or, or commonly people do that, but I think a lot of people do. I don't know if everyone does as much as they should, but uh, but you should do that. Sure. Okay, I asked because you mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, and we, I didn't get a chance to ask you guys how you would normally implement that, like on a mm-hmm. website or info page or whatever, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I could describe the ways, them. but I'm I'm not a lawyer, so anything I say <laughs> is for entertainment Wait, purposes Wait. only. Exactly, that's right. <laughs> all right, so uh, hi, and man, the rules right. in Canada may be all different too. I don't. Who knows? Yes, yeah, yes. So I can only speak to the U.S. It's the Wild West up there. <laughs> it's true. All these pipelines all over the place. Yeah. Um, so hey, Jaime, do you have a pick? I do, and it is uh, something I've gotten uh, probably half the way through. Um, it's called Music for Programming. That's at musicforprogramming.net by, um, who is the individual's name? John Davies, also known as Dataset. I think he is a, a creative person, let's say. So he creates music, um, creates designs, and all sorts of uh, artsy things. And uh, he's put together, uh, along with some other folks, some, some music that is intended for you to be listening while you're creating things. Um, oh, I like really? to listen to it while I'm programming. I can imagine you should probably do it, you know, while you're doing, um, you know, art as well. But I, I find that their selections are pretty good and that it's, it's kind of good background noise. It's not overly engaging where like my mind starts to wander away from the task at hand and starts, you know, analyzing the music. Um, nor is it, you know, like, so like a, like white noise buzz that it's like completely uninteresting. It it kind of feels like it it juices the creativity a little bit. Um, very similar from what I can tell to, um, like if you've ever listened to the Mr. Robot soundtrack, that's a really good one to, to program to. Um, so you, you know, it can't be all buckethead all the time, uh, no matter how much you might want to. Sometimes I want something a little more low key, (laughs) 
and, and these tracks are pretty good. I've gotten, let's see, as of this recording, there are 44 collections, uh, each of about, mm, what have they been? 45 minutes to an hour ish. Um, and I've gotten through about, uh, 20 of them, I think. And so I, I usually just queue up, uh, based on what my day is going to look like. I'm like, all right, well, I've got three hours of working time here. Well, I'm going to queue up three of those. And every time the music, you know, stops for any reason, uh, I say, oh, must be time for me to stand up, stretch, you know, rest my <laughs> eyes, get some water, go to the bathroom or something. It's, it's actually like really good chunks of time. So I'd say, uh, check it out. It's worth a try. So you just click the links and they start playing these, these, uh, tunes for you in the browser. Uh, or is it a SoundCloud thing? You can, I think you can play cause there are keyboard yeah, controls, right but I, I just like, I just download them. So I don't have to worry about, um, you know, any bandwidth hiccups. Right. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. The UI is hot. Yeah, it's cool. Mm-hmm. That's why I asked confused, confused by the UI. Well, you see play or- on the top right there. Oh, you just hit that. Okay. Oh, interesting. Well, or you can click on the MP3 link and it opens up a little, well, a new page with a with a player. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, okay. Maybe cool. play does the same thing. That's the raw file. All right. Well, Aaron, do you have a pick? I do, and uh, this is something I've been beta testing for a couple weeks now, and it was released today as we record on Wednesday. Spark for Mac, which is a new Mac email client made by Readle who make a number of apps for the Mac, um, but they also have had their mail client for iOS for some time now. Um, this right. is the first time they've had the Mac version, and I, I like it. Uh, I've been playing with it now, like I said, for a couple of weeks. It's uh, free, so it is relatively painless to try. I have questions about what their business model is. Uh, it could be as simple as get bought by Google. I don't know. But it works great with Gmail, so maybe that is their business model. Some of the features um, that I really like about it, it looks good, uh, although it's you know that standard email client three-pane interface that, uh, that a lot of clients do. So it's, uh, it's not really breaking a ton of new ground. Uh, but functionally, it works very well. Um, that's like one of the big things I can say about it is it's, uh, it's just rock solid. Um, and I've been driven away from other email clients by just that one problem. Uh, anything that kind of flakes out on me, uh, I tend not to uh, enjoy using as much. That's why mail.app is just off the table for me. I just can't use it. It's not as reliable as I want it to be. Um, so, um, so far, Spark has been really great for that. Uh, it has a smart mailbox, so it uh, separates um, newsletters and messages from friends, um, notifications from systems like... Uh, things that I use at work, uh, they appear in categories inside this smart inbox, but you can also just have a combined inbox with all your email, uh, from your different client, uh, accounts rather. Um, another great thing about it is that it has terrific programmability in terms of setting shortcuts. So if you wanted to act a certain way, um, you can create different sets of shortcuts and it has pre- predefined ones, uh, like the default set for spark. And then if you want to use the mail.app shortcuts or the gmail.com shortcuts, you can select those as well. Um, and just create your own kind if you like. Um, so it's pretty handy for that as well. So yeah, big feature about it is that it just works. Um, and it looks pretty good. Um, and it works very well with the iOS versions of, of spark, uh, which I have also switched to uh, away from Outlook on iOS. So uh, I've been pretty happy with it so far, and it's definitely worth looking at. 
have a couple of questions. Um, my wife has she uses a, a, an unmentionable mail app. Why? Um, just, just just because we never found a better one. Um, no, but why but, is it unmentionable? Well, because it's, it's horrible. Anyway, the the um, I'm curious. She she always has trouble searching for um, past messages or subjects or that kind of thing. How's the searchability in the app? Yeah, that's it's terrific. Um, is it Gmail that she's using? No, no, no. It's, it's okay. not, it, we, we use IMAP. I was going to ask you if it works with IMAP it's, servers. Yes, well. yes. Well, it is IMAP, and Gmail's IMAP too, right? So <laughs> that's mm-hmm. uh, sort of the foundation of it. If you're using Pop Mail these days, like Switch, okay, I don't know oh. what you're on if you're on Pop, no, but get no, the hell away from there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the search has been really well, uh, working very well for me. Uh, that's a huge thing because I tend to archive everything. Um, if I get a message, I'm done with it. I, I keep my inbox to basically zero uh, or as close to zero as is practical. I'll never have more than, say, five messages in my inbox at any given time. Uh, if I have the slightest hint that I don't care about this message anymore, it's archived, instantly archived. So search is obviously a very important feature for me, and it works incredibly well so far. I start typing in something uh, that I that I want to bring back up again, uh, like, say, a license, you know, for an app that I didn't buy in the Mac App Store. Um, I can just start typing, and boom, it's almost instant. It's astonishing, really. Um, and there's my license for Dash. That's and I notice that they're um, supporting the touch bar as well in the video. Yes, of course. Yep. Uh, so we got a full full touch bar support. And again, just like anyone else, view customized touch bar, and you can make your changes to it. Uh, so works very well. Cool. All right. Can you talk a little bit about the... I'm looking at the, their website. The connected to all your tools, so integration with Dropbox, Google Drive... Pocket, Evernote, Instapaper. What sort of integration are they talking about? They don't really describe it here. Yeah, I don't know about that one, actually. Um, okay, I'm going through the preferences. Uh, they have quick replies so that you can like just like something and sort of pass back a message about an email. Like it kind of sounds like, oh, well, uh, you know, maybe you could attach documents from, from these different things or links or something, but it was, it was a little unclear to me if it was more than that. Because um, no, there I'm is that like anything. document provider thing you can do in iOS that yeah. I was like, oh, well, it should work with Apple Notes and you know any other thing that sort of conforms to that. Wasn't sure if it was like you know more extensive where I don't know maybe you can like archive emails to Google Drive or Box or something. Yeah, I got to so tell keep, you, keep I'm your not, own cold storage. I'm not seeing anything. Okay, so here I've done Dropbox in the help um, search. Share files with, see, bringing up the help file right now. Share files with others who use your Mac. Hmm. I'm not, there's nothing, man. I have no idea what they're well, talking about. Yeah, we'll leave that oh. one for follow-up. So somebody knows. No kidding. Tell us. I can't answer that question. So, so what is this box product that you speak of? What does that do? It's like a corporate version, an enterprise-y version of uh, Dropbox. It's a competitor oh, okay. to Dropbox, okay. but they, they sort of started with a, an enterprise and, and security privacy bent. Um, the two have kind of come closer together, but I don't think I know of too many people using Box for sort of just personal stuff, like the way that Dropbox has been used. Yeah. Okay, real-time follow-up, Jaime. Here it is. Uh, mm-hmm. Those integrations that you saw are to do with the iOS version only. Uh, they're not to do with the Mac. So if you go to the iOS, uh, I've got my phone here, and I'm looking at uh, Spark on my phone. 
And in the preferences, you've got connected services and you can attach it to your Dropbox, Google Drive, OneDrive, Box, as mentioned, uh, and Instapaper. So I can enter my Instapaper credentials here. This is my first time seeing this. And so see exciting. what... Yeah, I know. This is, this is happening. It's happening right now. Okay, so I've added my Instapaper... Whoops. To this thing and now i will go to my inbox and let's say can i do what with it um <laughs> hmm so i'm looking at a message and okay well that's the that's the action menu i don't know where where instapaper comes in at this point it doesn't make any hmm. sense yeah i thought maybe it might be something like remember back in the days when you would take your um your outlook.pst file when you'd be able to archive it and save that sucker off and, and, you know, for posterity or just to make, you know, room in what you've got. Ah, here we are. Yes. So I can save a message to iCloud drive out of the box. So there is a save action. Wow. This is powerful. You can save it as a PDF. So there's actually a command for that to save it as a PDF. And because I, I use iCloud drive, so that's the option I've got here. But if you had another service, you can add a service like Dropbox or Google drive. Um, and save your emails to those storages there. And I've just saved a PDF okay. of this email to my iCloud drive. Crazy. It's like the future. That's pretty good. That is crazy. Yep. It also has a calendar yeah. built in, by the way. <laughs> is it a menu calendar? No, of course not. It's on iOS. <laughs> but the Mac version apparently has one too. Okay. Um, yes, and, I saw that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, speaking of calendars, we'd never mentioned the calendar bug, which is the hottest oh, topic these days. Yeah. Should we talk about if, that? Well, if you're an sure. iCloud user, I guess. I, I, I haven't been bitten by that. Yeah, I need a virus. So what's the story on that, Mark? So there's a new – it's not a bug. Actually, it's a, it's a virus uh, that's <laughs> been going around late, lately where – it's not even really a virus. It's a bug, <laughs> but, it's, but it has viral tendencies. Uh, so – you will get sent spam with a with a calendar invitation in it, and if you have your calendar set up to automatically put things into your calendar, which I think most people do, I know I did until I until this started happening. Sounds like a default uh, will, setting. Yeah, yeah. It will it will take that and stick it in your calendar, and you'll constantly be getting these annoying pop ups saying, "Do you want to accept? Say maybe or decline." Uh, even if you try to delete it. It won't. Apple Calendar will not let you delete something without having accepted, saying maybe you're declining, which is kind of a a bad thing, and and I think is a, is a bug. Uh, so so what's been happening is you'll get these uh, invitations to some spam like sale of some product that you don't care about, and it shows up in your in your calendar, and the only way to get rid of it is is to decline. Uh, in which case, it will leave your calendar, but you've now sent a message behind the scenes to whoever sent it to you, saying that you exist, and oh, just like really? just like answering, you know, one of these spam phone calls. So now they have your email address, and and you'll constantly be getting spam from them. So the only way to delete it that I've found is to create a new calendar called spam, whatever you want to call it, uh, and move that uh, item into the new calendar. And then you can delete the whole calendar, and it will delete the item without sending a response. So Apple is aware of this, apparently. Uh, I was just reading about this earlier. 
and uh, there should be a fix coming out for it soon, hopefully. But uh, but yeah, it's still a uh, still an, it's still an issue right now, and especially with the holidays coming up, you'll probably see a lot of these these spam sales coming to you, to your inbox. So be careful. So you mentioned that there's a way to turn like how do you turn off it so that these events don't automatically get added to your calendar? Yeah, there's a, you can go into settings and and there's a, there is a setting that you can turn off that is to automatically add calendar items to your calendar. Is, it, you in, is it on the Mac or or on iOS or It's on both, I believe. Uh I mean I can check. Having to search through settings here, so I've just pasted I'm a link in the show settings. notes with okay, the good. solution. So cool, okay, great. There you go. Right. Yeah, because my wife is constantly adding stuff to my calendar, and I never really look at stuff like that. So he, something could sneak in for all I know. Yeah, especially because Apple Calendars is pretty persistent about bugging you to accept things. Uh, at least for me, I, I constantly if if I if I ignore an item. I will constantly be getting pop-ups saying, "Do you want to? Do you want to accept this? Do you want to decline it, or whatever?" Even sometimes, even after I've already accepted or declined it, I still get the pop-ups. They want me to do it again for some reason. But uh, yeah, it's 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 just an annoyance. But it, but it's only through your iCloud account, is that correct? Your iCloud? No, or... no, nothing oh. to do with iCloud. No. Oh really? No, no. Huh. It's just it... Apple Calendar. Yeah. Really? Huh. Yep. Yeah, I saw some. I saw some people tweeting about this, but I had a chance to dig into it. So, thank you for bringing that up. Sure. All right. Well, I just do. Um, it's that exciting time of the year. This is my pick, uh, where everybody gets you know it's that most wonderful time of the year when everybody go, runs out and buys their Star Wars tickets. Have you guys got yours yet? Uh, not yet. I haven't. No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to do that. Oh, come on. Well, I got mine already. <laughs> okay. Yeah, for yeah, for I, me, I it's yeah. I, I would have done it, but I, I might be traveling around that time. I haven't finalized oh, plans, so I was like, oh, I don't, I don't really know. I don't want to buy it for a theater. I'm not even going to be in the same city as. Unfortunately, yeah. For, it, yeah. yeah for, for me, it's going to be in Mississauga, where my my uh, son and my grandson are going to make the pilgrimage uh, to go see the show, and so I'll be working in Mississauga on that day. So <laughs> to save myself the traveling, you know. So that's cool. it. Tim, yeah. I thought when you said when you said Tim time of the year, I, I thought for sure you were talking about the App Store review shutting down. Oh yes, which is that's the true. Twenty third to the twenty seventh, I think. I don't. Well, I'll be out of the country at that point in time, so I really don't care. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we're we're going off to the Azores in for the end of the year this year. So, oh. mm-hmm. so I have to I have to open up. Um, oh, what's that app called that, to learn Portuguese? Um, Duolingo. Duolingo, yeah. Duolingo, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, hey, Aaron, if people want to get a hold of you on the interwebs, how would they do that? Go to Twitter, at Aaron Bay. Right. And Jaime, if people want to find you on the interwebs. Also on Twitter as at DevaTheHair. And if Mark, people want to get in touch with you. Mark R at Smapsoft.com. And as I said at the top of the show, I'm Tim Mitra, and I'm T-I-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Hey, if you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There, you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. Hey, if you like the podcast... 
please leave a comment on the website. And if you could also write a review on iTunes, that would be amazing. And if you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button now. I'll wait. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. The podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. And if you'd like to support us, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thank you so much for listening. Love you guys. Okay, yeah. Mac, it's time for the podcast. What, why are you here? <laughs> Mac has decided to come and bother me because it's podcast time, right, Mac? But he likes us, that's why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, okay, let me, uh, let me add Aaron and then I'll go deal with Mac and I'll be back. All right. Hello? Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Hey, guys, uh, give me one sec, all right? I just got to put my daughter to bed. Be right back. So, how many Cowboys are still looking pretty good? They are indeed. Yeah, are they ten and one now or nine and one? Ten and one. Ten and one. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. We could get a uh, Patriots Cowboys Super Bowl. Yeah, I was starting to think about some of the the matchups that are potential yep. coming up. Um, the Seahawks are the, I think, still the number two seed at the moment. Um, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. And and they're. Um, their their game against the Patriots taught me a lot about how the the Cowboys and the Patriots match up and strengths mm. and weaknesses. Sports ball. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. While uh, while Tim's still rounding up Mac or, or removing him. Um but the the thing that always worries me about the Cowboys is that they don't have a quick strike offense. Um yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the counter to that is that they burn up a lot of time, uh even when they don't score uh a touchdown. So um, they're going to have the ball for five to eight minutes, and they're going to get probably a field goal. So right. puts pressure on the other offense. Right. So if they, right. if they can get ahead, their middle-of-the-road defense becomes less of an issue because you're forcing the other team to have to take chances. Right. But yeah. when you're playing against uh, Seattle, which has a pretty good offense, then uh, you can – and they also have a good defense, right? I mean, they have probably better defense than offense right? than – then you got to be careful about that because they can come back and score uh, right. after your you know ten minutes of field goal. They come back and score a touchdown, and you can't do that too many times before you're before you're out of the game. Right, right. But it'll be interesting. Yeah, yeah. What are you guys talking about? Uh, football. Talking about football. football. Yeah, football. More football. Well, I mean, it's also the the holiday season too. Like I, That's I ended up with a bit of a, a podcast backlog, and I said, "Yeah, I'm not going to listen to some of these because I got too far behind." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely listen to a lot less podcasts now that I'm working, and and my my commute isn't quite as long as most people's commutes, right? So you you don't have much of a commute. You have like a thirty foot commute now, right, Harmony? It, it's it's not even thirty feet. I think it's within fifteen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You work from home, Jaime? I do work from home. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. So I so it's, it's it, the whole world is flip flopped. I'm the only one going to work every day now. That's yeah. Bizarre. Yeah. And and it it is a big reason why I ended up looking for the uh, music for programming because I realized how quiet it was. I got kind of used to having the the din of the background right, going right. on in, in an office. Yeah.
Okay. Yeah, I, I tried putting um, some YouTube Let's Play videos in the background because I, I use that for um, background noise for, for other tasks. But it, it was just too, like, the language piece kind of hit the wrong part of the brain that I was trying to use language to figure out the problem to begin with. Yeah. So it, it collided <laughs> and my attention was, was diverted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I miss hanging out on Slack. I used to hang out on Slack, you know, probably two, three hours a day you know, on and off here and there but uh yeah now that we don't use slack or slack at work we use hip chat and it's not quite the same thing right so. no it's not it's not yeah. Yeah. oh well well stay strong my man <laughs> talking about Jaime? <laughs> no i'm talking to you about oh, uh why? going to work <laughs> oh no you know it's it's i just had my year review year end review um i'm doing oh, it's another, been a, has it been a year or almost oh, well no it's year oh. end right year end is for us is uh oh, okay. is um uh, October, I think, actually November, maybe. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I think I'm nine months in, almost. I, I started in January, right? So I'm coming up. Oh, on, okay. Yeah. No, it was, my math eleven months then. Ten, ten, tenth month. Yeah. So yeah, the review went really well, and and um, I'm doing another, I'm doing the second wave of of uh, Swift training next week, and it's this is the this is the life of training in anything to do with iOS. Of course, you know last month when i did it you know two three weeks ago it was swift 2.2 with talking about what's changed in three and now this we just originally we just switched over to 8.1 yesterday actually so this i have to go back and rewrite the course for swift three now so good times yeah yeah change all those all those classes to structures (laughs) 